You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike Boyd, and I'm bringing you the rest of our interview with David L. Schneider, the production designer behind such films as Demolition Man, which we talked about just recently. Also, an art director on Blade Runner. He worked on the 50th Academy Awards. He has done a ton of stuff. You would not believe this guy's CV. And we got to talk to him a little bit more about some of the other work that he's done. So I want to bring you the rest of this interview. So please enjoy. My educational background uh, was in uh, architecture and graphic design. And uh, I was... uh, uh, in my late teens, early 20s, I was uh, a musician. I went on the road with a, a rock and roll rhythm and blues band from 1962 to 1965-66. Uh, we had some minor success. Uh, no one ever heard of us, but uh, we were involved with some great people in New York, like uh, uh, Gary Sherman, a producer who did uh, Up on the Roof and Under the Boardwalk, you know, really classic uh, Brill Building hit songs. And he uh, did the score for uh, the film Alice's Restaurant. And I don't know if you know what that is, but it, 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 it's a classic. And he did some Broadway stuff, and uh, he uh, was like a top producer, and he put the band together, and, uh, you know, uh, we recorded some things for a, a label called Bell Records, which is now Arista Records, and uh, had some success with that. And then at some point, uh, I, I'd been on the road for four years, and uh, uh, I decided that if I, I can't be the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, uh, I had to quit because uh, I had no interest in mediocrity. At that point, I moved out to California, and I was working in architecture and engineering. I saw a, a want ad in the newspaper uh, for toy designers, and I thought, well, you know, if, if you're a designer and you're trained in architecture and graphics and, you know, all, all the arts, uh, maybe I could do that. So uh, I got a job working at this toy company, uh, and the toys, uh, it was called, uh, uh, what was the name of the company? It was called Paper Toy. And what it was is... Uh, Famous architectural buildings around the world and uh, famous automobile designs. And they were made of uh, paper that was on stiff cardboard and you would cut them out and, and assemble them. It was, it was quite beautiful. And as it turned out, the financing for Paper Toy fell through. I'm talking like 1970, 74, 75. Created the company had been a television art director on shows like uh, Sonny and Cher and uh, uh, the Newlywed Game uh, and uh, Hollywood Palace and uh, you know lots of interesting shows when variety shows were maybe sixteen shows a week on the three networks. So he uh, decided that he had to go back to work in the industry. And he got a job on Sonny and Cher, and uh, he he offered uh, to uh, hire me as his assistant. And so getting an idea about uh, working 
in television uh, at CBS Television City in, in Hollywood. It was very glamorous and, you know, you can't help being uh, aware of all the famous people uh, that are involved in shows like that. And I found it, uh, you know, qu quite glamorous and interesting. I said, well, I'd like to have a job like this. This is great. Uh, because, uh, with my background in, in architecture, which I assumed I had failed at, and my background in music, which I assumed I had failed at, and, and, and graphics and advertising, which I assumed I had failed at, all of those things came together, uh, as, uh, you know, elements that were part of a job called art director, which I had no knowledge of until I, I met, uh, Jim Tompkins, the art director. So he, he was my mentor. I was working as an in-house architect at a aerospace company called Teledyne Systems. And one day, uh, he called me up and said, Hey, listen, uh, I'm going to be the art director on the 50th annual Academy Awards. Uh, and, uh, I just fired somebody. So I need somebody. And you said that you'd like to do this full time. So I'm offering you the job. And you have to tell me right now if you're going to take it. And uh, we're going to start tomorrow, uh, Saturday. So I, uh, I I left my job that I'd had for several years that gave you money every week for years and, and basically joined the circus. And so uh, I don't know if you know anything about that particular war of uh, that particular year of the Academy Awards, but it was the year of Star Wars. It was the year of Annie Hall. It was very exciting. And because it was the 50th annual Academy Awards, everyone who had ever been anybody, including people like Fred Astaire and, and Barbara Stanwyck and all these famous people were on the show. And well, of course, I, I was hooked. So I said, this is it. So that's how I started. Uh, it was, uh, February the 11th, 1978, where I started working full time. So I guess it'll be 40 years next year. What does an art director do? Like when you're working on, say, uh, Brainstorm or Pee Wee's Big Adventure, what, what are some of the tasks that you have to do as that role? You're responsible for the way everything looks. And in a way, you're responsible for everything but the music. Which is, you know, uh, an old, an old saying. And, uh, the, the job is, uh, first of all, you're probably the first person that's hired, uh, after the director and the producer are hired long before the cameraman, long before the editor, because in, in those days before digital technology, in, in order to, uh, design a show that had to be constructed, it meant that all the drawings had to be hand, handmade. Uh, they had to be made in the sense where, uh, it was pencil and ink on paper. And it was very time consuming as opposed to now working in Photoshop and Illustrator and CAD and, and, uh, SketchUp. There's, there's so many applications now where you can basically knock out a set in a couple hours. And in those days, just the idea of having to draw everything handmade, and then those drawings would go to the shop, that meant that you had to start very early. And so you developed a relationship with the director 
because there was no one else for him to hang around with. And so it, it, it was kind of great to be there during the casting and, and during all the things. That, and if the director had a lot of faith in you, you did a lot more than just being an art director. You became involved in lots of things. Like, uh, uh, I want you to come with me and look at this cameraman's reel and tell me what you think of him. Uh, would you like to work with him? So there was a certain amount of uh, cachet at being there first. And, and, and also, too, you could make sure when they were putting the budgets together that you made sure that you informed them of how much money you needed to do a great job. Uh, people that came along months later, by the time they get there, I had taken my fair share of the budget uh, to make sure the film looked great and everyone else had what was left over. So it's a very powerful position in a creative way, not not in in an ego way. It's kind of great, but you know, in those days, and of course, you know, there, there's the casting part of being uh, an art director, production designer. Each film is completely different. Every movie that's been made has never been made before, even it's a sequel. And so, uh, I. Uh, you know, I have different people that I think are great at some things and not other things. So you always have to have a, a roster of people that are well suited to like a science fiction film or a, uh, a sitcom or a dramatic film or a period film. You know, you, you use different people for different kinds of films. So that's part of the job. And then, of course, uh, because in the art department, you don't have a, a camera, a machine, which is a camera. You don't have an editing suite, which involves lots of the equipment. So the only thing that you have is your opinion, really. And, and what you have to do in the beginning is try to cooperate with the director's vision as much as possible. And uh, this way, uh, the producer and the director have faith in you. And, and at some point, they kind of leave you to your own devices as more people are added to the show and the director becomes busy with the cast and casting and gets busy with the director of photography and the costume designer. And once you have their trust, you're pretty much on your own to, to uh, realize their vision while at the same time, you know, using your ideas and your skills to, uh, to make a great movie, so it, 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 it's a pretty good job. I, I I can't imagine doing anything else. So I guess after forty years, I figured out what I wanted to do for a job. You worked on the Oscars in 1978. By 1983, you're nominated for an Oscar for Blade Runner. That is some meteoric rise that you had there in the ranks. Yeah, it was pretty cool having started. With the Academy Awards, I, I met a bunch of people, and uh, right after that, uh, with the same art director, uh, Jim Tompkins, uh, he said, I'm going to do this special with Olivia Newton-John. Uh, do you want to do that? And I said, of course. And so uh, it was another ABC show, like the Academy Awards was. At that time, the uh, guest stars on the show were Abba and Andy Gibb. And of course, Olivia. And, and at that time, they were all in the top 10 worldwide in the music charts. So it was very, very exciting. 
And uh, we had a live uh, 16-piece orchestra, and the show was recorded live. And, and I think it was really around the first time, 1978, that, that ABBA had gone to the top. Basically, no one in the band uh, spoke English, very, very little English, and some of them spoke no English at all. It was a very exciting time, and, and the guy that had directed it, Steve Bender, was, was quite famous because he had uh, directed and produced a television special with Elvis Presley when he made his comeback after, you know, going to semi-retirement. So all, all the time since I started in the business, some people start out, you know, you know, in, in some low-profile projects, and, and everything I did from that time on was world-class at the top. I, I was really lucky, but I was also very ambitious and uh, was willing to work 24 hours a day. Some people weren't, but I, I was determined to succeed. And I think the only reason I succeeded at it, because I never saw it as a job. It was just going to play every day. I mean, I don't think I've actually worked at anything in my life. Maybe being a busboy when I was in high school in a restaurant. After going into music and then advertising and graphics into television. And by the way, at that time in my career, I never had any idea that I'd ever work on a movie. And, and, and I was satisfied to work in television, especially at ABC, because you would eat in the commissary every day and there would be the, uh, the cast of Welcome Back Cotter and John Travolta before anyone knew who he was, the cast of Three's Company and all the people at ABC ate in the commissary. So there was all these celebrities and, and everyone was together. And so if you were on the lot at ABC or if you were in the lot at, at Paramount where we designed the Academy Awards, you know, it wasn't like you were a tourist or a fan. You were just part of the community. And everyone was very friendly and it didn't matter if you were an art director or a grip or a carpenter. Everyone was part of the family. You know, it was really a, a lucky break. And, you know, I, I made the decision in one day. And, and of course, my, my, my family thought I'd lost my mind that I quit a job to join the circus. But by the time of the 55th Academy Awards, when I was nominated, they all said we were with you all the time. I started at the top and it was great. Uh, I don't know anyone else who's that kind of luck and uh, in that short span of time. But it was so great to work on the Academy Awards and then be nominated just a few years later. What was that experience like working on Blade Runner? At the time that it was in pre-production, sometime in 1980, I, I had moved from television to uh, work on a, a, a movie at Universal called In God We Trust. On that film uh, was Marty Feldman, who was the writer-director, famous Marty Feldman, wonderful Marty Feldman, and, and Richard Pryor, uh, Louise Lasser, Andy Kaufman, Peter Boyle. I mean, it was just loaded with, with movie stars. And, and we had a huge budget. I, I was considered to be a really good, uh, assistant art director and art director on the Universal lot. And, you know, they would assign me, uh, as a, uh, a fix it guy. So all these shows were all done very quickly and, 
they did a show a week on on television series like Galactica 1980, The Hulk, Buck Rogers, The Hulk. All those shows, you won't see my credit on any of those because I was uh, like uh, the doctor. They would send me on shows to help out and fix them. And then finally, they gave me a show of my own, uh, a TV movie that was released theatrically, foreign, Captain America, probably the worst Captain America ever made. It was a terrible movie. But uh, they offered it to me. And at the same time, uh, the head of the art department offered me uh, the second Cheech and Chong movie. Because of my personality, I said, I would love to do that, but I can't because I already agreed to do Captain America to the producer, Alan Balter, and, and I couldn't, you know, go back on my word. So after that, uh, when In God We Trust was in pre-production, the designer, Larry Paul, uh, the designer, by the way, of Blade Runner and, and of Back to the Future, Romancing the Stone. He had, he had done quite a few films and he had started at the bottom as a draftsman, a set designer at Fox. So he was looking for somebody new and he asked me to do the film. And of course, it, it would be the first feature film I'd worked on, which I'd never dreamed anyone would let me work on a movie. I was perfectly happy in television. Uh, and got a paycheck every week because I was on staff at Universal because they were still part of the old studio system where everybody was on staff, on payroll. You know, the actors were under contract and all, all the departments were, you know, you were personal. I was lucky because I, I learned a lot in the 18 months I was there. So I met Larry Paul and uh, I took the job and it, it was pretty amazing. After being in the industry for like two years, really, if if you don't count the time that I was uh, under the radar on Sonny and Cher and and uh, those kind of films, the first film when I got into the union, because in order to work, you had to be in the union. And prior to that, like I said, I worked on Sonny and Cher a little bit and some other uh, novelty variety shows. But starting with the Academy Awards and then on to Olivia and then on to Universal, I was in the union, so I was eligible to work. After that, uh, Larry Paul got me uh, an interview with uh, Taylor Hackford. The Idol Maker was my my first feature as the principal designer. T Taylor uh, has since gone on to make many great movies and documentary features, and he was the president of the Directors Guild. He's like a, a, a quite a renowned person. And this was his first movie and, and my first movie. Because of my background in music during the same era of the film, I went into the meeting and I started talking about people and they had given me the script. And I said, yeah, this sounds like a story about a guy like Bob Marcucci. And they said, uh, wait a minute. And they went in another room and they brought Bob Marcucci in and I got the job on the spot. And I basically designed the film out of my life experience. It's quite beautiful. And I think one of the reasons why it looks so good is because it was designed by somebody who actually had lived that life. So I'm very lucky that my first feature was something I understood. If it had been, if it had been a Western movie or a, a biblical picture, 
I don't know if I would have been able to do such, you know, such a perfect job. I mean, it was perfect in all the details. And uh, although the film uh, wasn't seen that much because it was made by United Artists during the same months as Heaven's Gate was released and United Artists sort of imploded, uh, although it wasn't seen by that many people because of the implosion. It's it's a favorite of people in the in the industry. They love the movie because of the subject, showbiz, and you know, uh, from rags to riches to rags to riches, where the uphill climb and then success and then you fall down. There were a lot of great people that worked on that movie. It was uh, Peter Gallagher's screen debut. Jeff Berry did the music, who's written like a uh, uh, hundred songs like Leader of the Pack and uh, Sugar Sugar by the Archies, The Do Run Run, The Do Wah Diddy. He wrote so many pop songs that he actually wrote new songs in 1980 that were supposed to have been written in 1960, 59, 60, 61. So it was a completely new score. And uh, it's an all-around wonderful movie. And Ray Sharkey, uh, won the Golden Globe for, for best performance in a musical or comedy. So it had that kind of success and cachet. I got a lot of notice, you know, for what I did on it. So from there, to answer your question, uh, I got a call from Larry Paul. It said he was doing this film called Dangerous Days. And he asked me if I would like to be the art director on it. And I said, uh, well, thank you, and I love you, and you're my mentor and my friend, but I don't want to be anyone's assistant anymore <clears throat> now that I have, you know, done my own movie. And uh, he said, okay, uh, I understand. And matter of fact, the first time I saw the movie on the theater was, was with him, and at the end of it, he said that he was uh, so proud of me that he had mentored me and on my first picture he thought it was great looking and a great movie for me to start my career on my own i i I passed on that and then i started a movie called zoot suit which was based on the broadway play uh and uh it involved people from uh the uh uh mark taper theater in new york and that was gordon davidson who was the creative director. And I met with Luis Valdez, who had written and directed the play. And so it was going to be a big budget picture at Universal. <clears throat> but then the actor strike happened and they shut the picture down. Then I got another job uh, on uh, a pilot called The Greatest American Hero. So I, I was hired to do the pilot. And by the way, it was just in the in Variety yesterday that they're rebooting it and they're going to re they're going to do it again. It's another, another one of the things I did back then that they're doing again, like Blade Runner. So I, I took that job. Uh, the producer writer was Stephen Cannell, very famous guy who'd written like 20 TV shows. I started working on that and the director, uh, Rob Holcomb, he directed the pilot, lots of pilots, including the one for ER. So uh, he, he was quite good. Because of the after strike, that shut down. After Zoot Suit shut down, Larry Paul called me again and he said, I hear your picture shut down, so I'm offering you this job on Dangerous Days. 
And I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to try to find the job where I'm the principal designer. After the greatest American, Larry called me again and said, well, laughing, says, I see you lost another show. So you want to do this show? And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do Dangerous Days. I'm not interested. And, and by the way, I hadn't read the script and I didn't know anything about it except what, what I did know was that Ridley Scott was the director. And, and I was quite impressed with that because, of course, like everyone else, I had seen Alien, and I thought it was a masterpiece, and, and a hit. So finally, my wife said to me, you need to go to work. Uh, we, we need money. So finally, I, I caved in, decided to take the job uh, that I would be most famous for after turning it down twice. There's a lot of irony in that, I suppose. I went to work because the thing that Larry Paul said to me that made me take the job was he said, listen, I don't need an assistant. I need a partner because this is this is big. This is a gigantic show. And by the time I got there, there was probably maybe 15 people in the art department rendering, drawing. Uh, Mentor Hubner was doing production illustrations. We had five set designers who all went on to, to fame, like uh, uh, Charles Breen and uh, Tom Duffield, Greg Pickerel, uh, so many more who, who were, you know, just draftsmen, set designers, weren't even art directors at that time. What happened because of the strike? Michael Dealey, who was the producer who had just won the Oscar for Best Picture for The Deer Hunter, uh, said that. He would pay out of his own pocket to keep the art department going until the strike was over because, as in my earlier discussion, all the drawings had to be handmade. And and it could take one drawing, it could take like a week or more with all the detail that was in Blade Runner. Uh, it would take more than a week or more to get the drawings because without the drawings, you you couldn't give the construction department anything to work with to start manufacturing the sets. And we built sets that in, in 1980, 81, totaled $2.6 million. In today's money, you can just imagine what it would take. I don't think you, they made Blade Runner 2049 for $26 million. I mean, I work on like comedies that used to cost $26 million. I mean, I just did a movie in, in Auckland, New Zealand, and in uh, Qingdao, China, uh, in 3D. And, and that movie cost $20 million only because of the incentives that you get from the government pay for most of the budget. So I started on the show, and, and Michael Dealey kept the art department on, and then the strike ended, and then we went into high gear and brought the construction department in. And at, at its peak, the construction department, carpenters, painters, plasterers, sign writers, were over 400 people on the crew, not counting the art department or all the other departments, just people pounding nails and painting and plastering, 400 people at its peak. Plus, we were building, you know, all the cars, too. That that was another job. And plus, Doug Trumbull's guys were building all the miniatures at uh, Maxella, this company at Entertainment Effects Group. So I, I, I Larry Paul was the overlord of the art, 
Art Harmon, working with uh, Ridley. And, and my job was to, uh, during pre-production, was to get everything constructed. And then to answer your question, my job during the shooting was to take every set and turn it upside down and sideways and inside out by being on the set all the time because Ridley told Larry that he wanted me on the set all the time to make changes, which started on the first day of shooting. There were change, changes every day, all, all for the better, because Ridley was sort of the executive production designer, and he would uh, look through the lens and come up with an idea, and we would all, the camera crew would go take a break while we changed everything, and, and he was always right. There were always improvements, but part of that was he would say to me, I hate that, do something else, and I'd say, well, what do you want me to do if you don't like this? What do you want me to do? He'd say, that's not my job, mate. You go figure it out. We would revamp a set, and he would come and look at it. And maybe he'd like it, maybe he wouldn't. And the irony of that is every time I thought it was a mistake that I had done something wrong, he loved it. And every time I thought something was great, he didn't like it. So, you know, having that be my, I don't know, my second or third movie, I didn't have the attitude that the rest of the crew did. And their attitude was, who is this guy from England who's never made a picture in the United States telling me how to do my job? Don't tell me how to do the props. Don't tell me how to do the costumes. Don't tell me anything. You just do your job and direct the movie. At the beginning, there were a lot of people who had to go away because uh, his motto was, you're either with me or you're not, because I'm going to make my movie. Stop asking me why I'm doing this and why I'm doing that, including Harrison Ford's. Would ask, you know, why are you doing that? And he said, stop asking me questions. I'm going to do what I, I know what to do. And you do your job and I'll do mine. So at the end of the day, I guess it was a wise decision to take the job. Uh, I have so many requests for interviews uh, over the years, especially in 1990 when the film was rediscovered. Uh, and I, I did uh, a very extended uh, interview with Kenneth Turan, who is the Los Angeles Times critic. And then again, in 2007, uh, when the final cut came out, I was sent to New York for the premiere, and there was a lot of press there. And now... Uh, uh, there's uh, you talking about Demolition Man and what came before it. I just did an interview with Vanity Fair, which is coming out uh, when the film does next month. So it'll probably come out late September. So uh, I guess it's been good for me. I, 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 on the other hand, uh, you know, there's every time you get a job, uh, especially in science fiction, people see what you're doing. And I've done quite a few of those films, as you know. Uh, they expect to see all the elements of Blade Runner. I have to explain to them that if you really wanted to make something like Blade Runner, you need to hire Ridley Scott to direct it because everything everything that happened on that film was at at his uh, his pleasure. And a lot of the things I did on my own, he was very pleased with. But he never said it was great. Thank you, because his philosophy was. He asks for 180%, and he's lucky to get 90% of what he really wanted. His attitude, and that's why he's a genius, he never gets exactly what he wants, 
in my memory, there were many things on Blade Runner that we did or wanted to do that, that never wound up in the film. But the audience doesn't know that. All, all the, the cast and the crew know that. So they, they don't miss it. But for me, I can think of all the heartbreak of all the things I did on every movie I ever did that never made it to the screen. And it's kind, it's kind of heartbreaking, you know. I mean, these, I'm talking about sets that were built and dressed that were never filmed because we never had the time. What was it like that transition from art direction into production design? What, what are some of the differences between those roles? For the most part, I'd say that as an art director, you're responsible for physically realizing the film. And that means that every day I would start my day to go into the construction department and go to the stages and go to the back lot to make sure that everything that Larry and Ridley came up with. And by the way, there was plenty of information starting with, uh, you know, the inspiration from Sid Mead, uh, who, who didn't design the film, but he inspired the design of the film. And so I, I would go there and then I would have to get in my car, uh, on Blade Runner and drive out to the valley to where uh, all the cars were being manufactured. Yeah, and then I would drive all the way to uh, Venice to Doug Trumbull's place uh, with the drawings of the full-scale sets to to work with Mark Stetson, who's a, the Academy Award-winning uh, miniatures and visual effects guy. I would work with him so that the miniatures were being built at the same time as the sets, so the miniatures would be exactly as the same as the full-size sets, because traditionally the film would be finished and then they had a miniature department who would look at the film and would do their, their take on what the miniature should look like. And that's why in so many of those films, the sets are one thing and the miniatures are another. And sometimes the two married and sometimes they didn't because the miniature department was given a certain amount of creative freedom to do what they thought was correct with it. And that included the matte paintings and all the rest. So the job as the art director is to make sure that everything is being manufactured to, to, to my satisfaction out of respect for Ridley and Larry's place and the staff. And so it was very, it was actually very exciting because I was there as everything was being built and then Larry would see it when it was done. He'd know that I had protected him, protected his vision, because I, I had to go in and make changes on the cars, make changes on the miniature to make sure they were true to the whole concept. And by the way, the car guy's name was Gene Winfield, who built all the cars. So when you're the production designer, you have to be with the director, you have to work with the cameraman, you have to do lots of things and take up your time in meetings and, and dealing with, especially with the budget. I really never had to deal too much with the budget, except when I was told, don't spend any more money. Uh, we're going to take this money out of this set and put it in that set. So the best way to describe it is an art director realizes the show, gets it built, gets it done, makes all the changes in, in pre-production. And, and the production designer is in charge of the entire look of the film, working with the costume designer. Uh, working with the special effects guys, the visual effects guys, 
He worked with uh, Sid Mead uh, for the short time that Sid was around. Uh, and so, and, and of course, dealing with the producers to telling them not to spend any money. So Ridley wanted everything, and the producers wanted nothing, uh, except Michael Dealey, who was true to it, but he would hire people to say no, so he didn't have to say no. He had a saying that if Ridley picks up the pencil, it's hundreds of dollars, and if he picks up the pen, it's thousands of dollars. He was one of the best illustrators on the show. He could sit down and make a drawing in 15 minutes of what he wanted. So there was never any any question as to what the director's vision is. And on some shows, the director is concerned only with storytelling and performance with the cast. And he'll he'll spend his money in doing rehearsals and blocking and all that. And say to me, like like Kyle Reiner said to me in summer school, he said, hey, man, you just do your job. I hired you because I know who you are. That job came right after Back to School, uh, which is like a $100 million blockbuster. So he had a lot of faith in me and just said, do your thing. I never had to really show him anything, but of course I always did out of respect. But he never said to me, do something different. I don't like it. With Ridley Scott, you had to do exactly what you thought he'd like. And at the end of the day, you'd have to do it again and again and again, which which I didn't mind. Now, some people from the old school resented it, and they went away. Either they were fired or they quit. I joined the team. I became a good soldier for Ridley Scott's, and that's probably why I made it to the end and beyond. I was on it for 18 months. If you include the time where after the picture wrapped, Doug Trumbull hired me to do Brainstorm as the art director because he already had a production designer who was a good friend of mine, uh, the late John Vallone. And I said, sure, I'll do that. I was flattered that the guy who did 2001 A Space Odyssey and Close Encounters and everything else he did that would personally call me on the phone and ask me to replace the art director because he felt that John Vallone was hired by the producers and he wanted someone to be in his corner. So I had to balance the job of being John's art director and his good friend and, and taking care of what Doug wanted me to do. During that period of time, all the post-production on Blade Runner was being done at Doug Trumbull's place, Entertainment Effects Group. So I, I was called on all the time by the uh, visual effects crew to come in and take a look at things and say, is this the way it's supposed to be? Because you were there and we weren't. So it was very, very satisfying. And, and I also got to meet Philip Dick on the one time he came to see the rushes, an assembly of shots that were done to have him take a look at it. And uh, I sat with him in the projection room and Ridley and Joanna Cassidy and Doug Trumbull. When Philip Dick came out of the screening room, he was so stunned that he could barely speak that he felt that although he was against making a film of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, he was elated that it was everything that he had envisioned in, in his mind. That was, that was really satisfying. 
that I had something to do with something that we thought was going to have greatness. I mean, it took 20 years for people to realize it, but in any case, I always believed that the film was great, no no matter what version. But not, now that we're at this point, to me, the only version of the film is the final cut. Only because at the time we made the film, the tools that are available now in the digital domain and computers were not available at that time. So we were unable to realize the vision because we just didn't have the tools to do it. And so when they did the final cut, they brought in all these guys from Pixar. And so it was all the old school people who worked on the film and all the kids who were the, the you know, the future. And that's why I think the final cut came out so great because it was, you know, it was old school, new school, the best of everything. Well, what's it like when you're doing double duty on Pee-wee's Big Adventure and doing both art direction and production design? I was the production designer and my uh, and my uh, art director, I think it was uh, Marjorie Stone, and my set decorator was Tom Royston. It was a very l- low-budget movie uh, that everyone laughed at, you know, making a movie with Paul Rubens, P.B. Arman. We, we were the joke of the studio, I can tell you. We only had $7 million to make the movie, and at the same time, they were making Goonies, which I suppose cost at least 40 or $50 million. We made Pee-wee's Big Adventure under the radar because every studio executive was like watchdogs on Dick Donner and, and Goonies. So no one ever bothered us. And and that's why the film turned out the way it did, because it was Tim Burton and Paul Rubin's vision without being caught up in notes and, and uh, studio creative suggestions. They left us alone and we made the movie and it made uh, it cost seven million and it made 50 million dollars. It was like one of the biggest hits based on the budget that the studio had. I also turned that movie down, too. Now that I think about it, I had just done a film called uh, My Science Project at Disney, which unfortunately failed for political reasons. The studio was taken over by Michael Eisner and Jeff Katzenberg and Frank Wells in the middle of the movie uh, because they came in with a new agenda. What had generally happens is when you take over a studio, you sort of ignored everything that's done before you got there to prove that you're a genius and that you know what's best. So it kind of got lost, and it never got much promotion. But it's a pretty damn good movie. It's a lot of fun. It never even got the Blu-ray treatment, you know, which is sad, uh, which it deserves. So anyway, I had just finished that movie. I was exhausted because in those days, I was doing movies back-to-back, overlapping. I was busy all the time. And uh, I got a call from a, a guy named Bob Shapiro, who was the president of Warner Brothers Studios. He had just left that job with a deal to produce films for Warner Brothers. <clears throat> so I'd never met him before. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm Bob Shapiro. Uh, I'm doing this picture called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And Tim Burton met you at Disney when you were doing My Science Project. And he was doing Frankenweenie, the black and white live action version of Frankenweenie. And Tim and I immediately connected because most people on the Disney lot at that time, 
uh, had been there for their entire <clears throat> career, and aside from Splash, had not had a, a hit in years. Tim and I were in the animation building. We had offices near each other, and we connected right away because we were like new school, and everybody there was waiting for Walt to come back to life, you know. So the studio was sort of stuck, in my opinion. Bob Shapiro said, well, Tim Burton wants you to design Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I said, yeah, well, I'm going to go to Hawaii. I'm exhausted. I, I, I'm i not going to work for a while. And he said, well, yeah, but Tim Burton wants you. And as the producer of the show, my first movie I'm producing, you're going to make me look bad if I can't get the first guy that he asked for. By the way, Bob Shapiro's father was a comedy writer for Jack Benny and lots of other people. So he had a really great sense of humor. He was extremely intelligent. Uh, had been a William Morris agent before he took over Warner Brothers. And I said, I don't know if they can make a movie out of, out of, out of Paul Rubin's thing. Cause I had seen the HBO special, uh, Pee-wee's, whatever it was. And, and I liked it. And I, I liked TV and I thought it was great, but I said, I don't know how you could make a movie. So, uh, he said to me, uh, I want you to, to, to think about it. And he said, because, you know, I talked to a lot of directors and producers about you to check up on you. And, and I said, yeah. And I'm sure they all said that I was great. And Bob Shapiro said, no, actually. They all said they hated your fucking guts, but we'll take you anyway. And and at that moment, I said I'll do it because I thought I want to work. I want to work with this guy. He's really funny. So they brought in Phil Hartman and they brought in Michael Varhall to write the script. And I brought in my storyboard guy from uh, Strange Brew, Paul Chadwick, who's a very famous comic book writer. He created a, a comic book character called uh, Concrete. He's, I'm trying to think of the comic book company that he's with, but he's like world-renowned. And he was probably, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old at the time. So he did the storyboards with Tim <clears throat> and Michael Varhall and Phil Hartman and Paul Rubens wrote the script. I had a great time. It's, it's one of the most fun times I've ever had making a movie. I thought the sets were really wonderful in it. Tom Roysman, the set decorator, was was great on it, it's, and and with no money at all. We we basically had no money, and I think the film looks the way it does. It's like a cardboard looking movie, low budget, but but creative. And of course, Tim had a lot to do with it. But Tim pretty much left me to my own devices in designing the sets. And unfortunately, because it was low budget, a lot of the sets were cut by the production office at Warner Brothers, like in uh, Pee-wee's house. <clears throat> we had a living room and, and a dining room, and they cut all that out. So all we were able to build was the kitchen and the bedroom, which which are pretty damn cool with the fire pole and all that. I, I thought it was good. I don't know what anyone else thinks, but I think it's great. And it, it's been very good for me, you know, as good as Blade Runner, I think, you know. Well, that whole like breakfast creator with the eggs and the the pancakes and everything—it's amazing. Yeah, the bre- the breakfast machine turned out really good. And w- one sidebar on that is they kept trying to figure out how to get the pancakes to stick to the ceiling. That, that was built by a guy named Chuck Gaspar, and at that time, during the making of Pee Wee, he was nominated 
for best special effects for Ghostbusters. So needless to say, I had a great guy working and putting together all that stuff. So they kept trying to use Velcro and rubber pancakes and all that. And I said, you know what? We're doing this all wrong. So what I did was I built a ceiling set and I took the cat in the fiddle wallpaper and turned it upside down on the ceiling piece. And they said, what are you doing? And I walked over and I picked up a pancake and I dropped it to the, to the ceiling set on the floor. And they said, that's it. So uh, it's just, you know, it's a common sense thing more than being a genius. It just made sense to me that we're doing this the wrong way. So there, there's great moments like that, you know. You have uh, worked in the business for so long, and I'm curious, you talked about the use of CGI when it comes to, you know, creating these steamboats, and, and how has that affected your work as the proje- production designer? Do you now say, like, okay, this will be a real object versus this will be a computer generated, and how are you still designing for both of those mediums? When I say that they're CGI sets, in most cases, there's they're CGI set extensions. So you do have to build uh, a, a certain amount of uh, the sets as live action sets where people will be walking through and they'll be interacting and, and there's furniture and, and decor and architecture involved. So the first thing I want to say is everything is faster now. Number one, faster, faster. Blade Runner took 85 days and nights to shoot and then they shot some more. I don't know how many days it took to shoot Blade Runner 2049. I imagine not 85 days. And I talked to Ryan Gosling about it, and he assured me that it's not a CGI movie. He said I'd be proud of what they did. He said that hardly any green screen. So they're doing the best we can, and that's kind of what we're thinking of doing. There's not all CGI for for the Riverboat movie. Uh, it's a, I'll, I'll build what I have to build, but nowadays the visual effects guys start exactly when the production designers start because visual effects are no longer a post-production endeavor. It happens at the same time because I don't know how much I need to build until I sit with the effects guys and they say, it's going to cost me this much to build this much of the boats and, and along the shoreline of the 1870s Mississippi, you know, which no longer looks the same, uh, which we'll have to find in Canada. Uh, and, and then I'll say it'll cost me this much to build everything. And so the producers will get together and they'll decide to say, okay, David, you do this and, and visual effects guy, you'll do that. And then we might argue back and forth and say, well, that's not a good idea. You should do this and do that. But that's what they expect us to do. So it goes back and forth and back and forth. And then, you know, uh, like I say, the visual effects department used to be under the supervision of the art department back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, you know, guys like Cedric Gibbons, who ran the MGM department, told everyone what to do. He told the camera department what to put the camera. The art department was in charge of everything. Well, that is no longer the case. And the visual effects department, I have to make sure that I hire as a producer, because I'll be a producer on this, of course, and and I'm moving more into producing. 
as, as production designer so that I can make sure that the art department has the resources to do a great job, see? So I say, if you want to hire me as a production designer, you know, look at my sheet, uh, then I want to be a producer too, a creative producer. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's what I was on Into the Rainbow so that I can have some power over making sure that the film is not only good, that it also looks good. So I have to make sure that whoever is hired as the visual effects supervisor is my guy that I can work with. Because when I was working on stuff like Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers, uh, John Dykstra, who had just won the Oscar coming off of Star Wars, you know, was like a big deal at that time. And, and they barely even had any conversations with the art department at all. They had become the kings of motion picture making. And the art department was supervised by the visual effects department because the studios for a hundred years knew what the art department did. But as far as visual effects, it was a mystery. It was magic. And because they didn't understand it, they worshiped it. So every studio had to have a John Dykstra, had to, had to have a, a, a Grant McEwen, a miniature guy. So they really ruled the industry for, for quite a few years until it got to the point when we got around the time of Blade Runner and thereafter, everyone came to the realization that the art department and the visual effects department were just as important as one another. Because for a while there, the art department had no say on visual effects. We had, we had sort of been pushed into the background because of the magic. And nothing, nothing studio bosses like better is, is to worship the magic of it. Something they don't understand, they worship. So nowadays, it's leveled out and we, we all work together. But, you know, as far as films like the Transformers, I've, ne- I've never seen one, but I've seen the trailers and that's enough for me because, you know, when you get to that level of computer generated images, to me, it's just like animation. And I could be wrong because there's such a huge success for guys that I really admire, like Lorenzo Di Benaventura and people go and see them, but it's not, not my cup of tea, not my taste. My, my taste is, is, is based on what Doug Trumbull drummed into us is that the only time that you do a visual effect is when there's no other choice. So is uh, the best place for people to keep up on you and things like Into the Rainbow, is that via your website, uh, David L. Snyder Films? Yeah, you know, that has to be updated. Uh, It's a few months behind. Uh, I have to add something. Yeah, sure. They can go to that. Unless you have IMDb Pro, there's, there's not much to gain out of that.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.